the First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Anyway, if you guys brought a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile device, please turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter number 6. And like I said, if you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to, to pick up one of the ones in front of you. And if you don't actually own a Bible, then just take it home. I mean, that's what it's there for. It is our gift um, to you. And so today we're in part 4 of the series titled, Be Strong and Courageous. And this is based on the book of Joshua. And the reason why we named this series, Be Strong and Courageous, obviously, is because in the first chapter alone, uh, Joshua is told four times to be strong and courageous. In fact, God said it to him three times. And at the end of chapter 1, the nation of Israel collectively said, Be Strong and Courageous. And so, as we talked about, as we opened up this series, uh, um, the idea of being strong and courageous isn't so much about finding strength and courage um, within ourselves, but instead it's about believing God and the promises that He makes and, and the things that He promises to do. And so being strong and courageous is an act of faith. You see, Joshua, just like Joshua, God has a plan for your life. Um, now, you might not be called to leave an army and you might not be called to bring God's people into the promised land, but God is calling you into the fray. As we talked about in week one, He's calling you into the fight. He has a plan for your life. There is something that he wants to accomplish through you. God rescued you through Jesus Christ for a purpose. Now, that purpose may be to raise children who honor God, or that purpose may be to shine a light in the darkness of your workplace. It may be to be a mentor for the, for the children in this, in this community. It may be that you might become an evangelist and spread the gospel around the world. Um, you know, God may be calling you to become involved in the community as a leader in the community. Um, he might even be calling you to full-time ministry. You know, maybe God's plan for your life is to go out into the world and just teach people how to sing and worship. Maybe he's calling you to love the unlovable around you. Maybe God's calling you to build a network of business people who can help fund the, the kingdom of God. Or maybe... Maybe God's plan for your life is just simply to draw close to him, you know, in prayer and in, in, and in his word so he can heal you right now. Whatever, you know, it is, God has a plan for your life and he has something he wants for you to accomplish. And in that plan for your life, he has called you to be strong and courageous because God has made a promise. He has promised that if you will follow where he leads uh, and you will do what he's calling you to do, he will knock down your adversaries and your obstacles in the way. He has promised that wherever you go, he will be with you. And most importantly, he will never leave you or forsake you. You see, as we learned from week one, the calling to be strong and courageous isn't about personal strength or personal courage. It's about faith in God. It's about being strong and courageous as we pursue God's plan for our lives. It's an outward demonstration of an internal trust that we have for God and His promises. And if we are strong and courageous, we are to be strong and courageous, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And that's the, that's the point of the first chapter of Joshua. And then in week two, we talked about how we must not hesitate to follow where God leads. We need to be strong and courageous and not let fear cause us to hesitate or rebel against what God's plan for our lives is. You see, being strong and courageous is a demonstration of faith, but hesitation uh, because of our fear is a lack of faith. And hesitation, you know, uh, and hesitation to do, hesitating to do what God says to do, as we said, is the opening shot in our rebellion against God. Our fear causes us to hesitate and rebel against what God's plan is for our lives. And as we talked about, 
Um, when we hesitate and when we refuse to do what God calls us to do, there are always consequences of that. The, the least of which is the loss of the blessing that God has for, for those who follow him. Uh, at other times, refusing to follow God leads us into trouble. And we saw you know, uh, how the hesitation uh, in the nation of Israel led them into lots of trouble. And so we need to be strong and courageous and willing to go when God says to go. And then last week we talked about the fact that oftentimes we ask the wrong question. Joshua, we're like Joshua, we ask God if he's on our side. And that is entirely the wrong question to ask. We need to ask ourselves, are we on God's side? Are we on God's side as individuals? Are we on God's side as a church? Are we on God's side as a community? Are we on God's side as a nation? Because God has a side. And we need to make sure that we're on it regardless of what popular culture tells us, regardless of what laws the, the government makes or attempts to pass, regardless of what, what's politically correct, uh, regardless of what the Supreme Court rules, we need to make sure we're on God's side. In fact, Peter makes it clear in very plain in the book of Acts, he says, we must obey God rather than men. God has a side and we need to make sure that we are on it and we need and what we need to do is we need to draw up close to him we need to live lives that allow us to discern his will in fact a familiar uh, verse uh, uh, that Paul shares with us is in Romans 12 it says um, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice okay give to God your whole life holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world this is the key phrase right here do not be conformed to this world um but be transformed by the renewal of your minds and that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God says to live holy lives so we're able to determine what God's will is and what side, what, what God's side actually is. Now today, we're going to continue through the story of Joshua. And as we talked about last week, um, where we are in this narrative is right before God uh, kicks off this campaign where he uses Joshua and, and the army of Israel to conquer the promised land, um, it, it, which you know will take several actually actually take several years to accomplish. And so, in this point of the story, the nation of Israel has already crossed the Jordan River. They have already been circumcised as, as required by the law, and then they um, have already you know uh, had their first Passover in the land. Now they're eating from the fruit of the land, and so God doesn't have to to provide for them manna every day. And they've set up twelve memorial stones to remind the, the future generations that what God has done for Israel. And the army has now moved into position and is encamped near Jericho and Joshua as we talked about last week meets the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and basically uh, he tells Joshua the question isn't is God on your side the real question is are you on God's side and, and, and the presence of this pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the scene um, as the commander of the of the Lord's army is a visible demonstration you know that God is with Joshua and God is with the, with the nation of Israel and Joshua is to follow the plan of God and, and, and so and so it um, it points this Jesus being there points to Jesus ultimately is the one who fill, uh, who wins the battles now what follows this particular scene, you know, this strange scene of Joshua meeting, you know, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. What follows this are two major battles. Uh, 
for two different important cities, the city of Jericho and then there's the city of Ai. And even though the book of Joshua talks about conquest and battles uh, and the pro for the promised land, there are only three major battles that, that Joshua really goes into detail and highlights. And actually, he, uh, he details two of them in, you know, one right after the next, which is for Jericho and Ai. Now, both of these cities, they both have to be conquered as a part of this conquest for the promised land. And they're the first two cities to be fought over. And what's interesting is, is one battle is, takes place and then the next one takes place right after it. But there's a stark contrast between these battles and how they turn out, at least initially. Okay, there's a, there's a contrast in the results of these two battles. Because we'll, as we'll see here in just a moment, the, the battle for, for Jericho is an overwhelming success, at least at first. And then the battle of AI you know, is an abysmal failure, at least initially. And, and in this narrative of these two battles, there, there's some really important lessons that we can actually learn from, from Joshua. And so what we're going to do this morning is I want to take you through the details of these two battles. And then what I want to do is kind of like kind of zero in and, and talk about some principles that we can build, that we can use for our lives to be strong and courageous uh, to follow God in the plan that he has for us. And so let's begin with the battle of Jericho. Chapter, uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, it says, now Jericho was shut up inside because of the people of Israel. No one uh, went out, no one came in. So just imagine here, okay, you have this great walled in city, okay, and, and, and people are getting ready for this fight. They know it's coming, and so they've stockpiled their provisions, they've locked the gates up, and no one's able to come in or out because the Israelites are preparing to attack the city. And in verse 2 it says, And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and his mighty men of valor. Now, now, two things that we need to point out here is, first of all, right after the appearance, this is right after that appearance of Jesus Christ. This is that appearance of the commander of the Lord's army, okay? Which probably means he's the one that's talking to Joshua right here, okay? Jesus himself has probably given Joshua his instructions. And the second thing that, that, that it says, that he says, see, I've given Jericho into your hand. Now, this is a strange statement, Okay, we read the story and we kind of go past these details, but this is a strange statement because if you were there to look at the city, what you would see is a fortified city with huge, thick walls, all closed up. And they probably had enough provisions inside that city to last 18 months to two years. Okay, and these people were ready to fight. And they, have, they, they may have been scared of the Israelites coming, but Jericho and its inhabitants had the physical advantage at the time. Okay, all things being equal, this was... There was no reason for someone like Joshua to expect to win a fight like this. But, but God said, see, I've given Jericho into your hand, okay, with its kings and mighty men of valor. Joshua, you know, you're, you're going to win this fight. This city is, is yours for the conquering, including the king and, and, and his toughest troops. And, and this right here, this, this fact right here, what God says to him, is an important principle that we need to understand. And the principle is this. When God is involved... The odds don't matter. When God is involved, the odds don't matter. God says, see, I've given Jericho into your hand. And if it weren't for the fact that God was involved and promised Joshua that none of his enemies would be able to stand before him and that God would be with him, I think Joshua might have said, look at what? I mean, what I see is a city that's prepared for battle. And they're more prepared than we are. I mean, they're a fortified city and they're ready for a long, drawn-out fight. And we don't even have the basic siege Tools. We don't have to have the tools to make siege weapons. What do you mean, look? What are we looking at here? But Joshua understood, you know, that God was faithful to keep his promises 
And so, he, and so he was strong and courageous, and he believes what God had, that God had given Jericho into his hand. Now, you might think, well, what does that have to do with me? And what does this part of the story have to do with me? What's well, all in the application because it has everything to do with you. Because there are going to be times in your walk with God that you are going to face what seems to be overwhelming odds in your life. You're going to follow the path where God leads you and, and, when, and then you're going to come to a place when inevitably it's going to seem impossible. But God is going to continue to urge you on anyway to, to continue to go forward. You see, when I realized... I was being called into ministry, it seemed absolutely impossible to me. I had no idea how in the world that would work out. All I could see were the obstacles and the high, formidable walls you know, that were in the way. I mean, me becoming a pastor, I'm just telling you, if you knew me before, was just something that was completely impossible. But, but God had a plan, and I decided to trust Him. And that is the application of that principle, is that we must trust God even when the situation seems impossible. You see, just like Joshua, you know, on the outside, things look impossible, but Joshua knew that God was with him. And, and if you will do what God is calling you to do, then you will know that God is with you. And if God is with you, then there's nothing that's impossible for you. Now, this conversation between the Lord and Joshua continues, and, and he gives Joshua instructions on what he needs to do to win the battle. And God says to him, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, here's the thing. We have all heard this story. And, and some of us, we've heard this story many, many, many times. And because we've heard this story many times, and we've heard it probably since we were little kids, in fact, we probably even sung the song, you know, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. And don't make me sing that song, but, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? All right. Um, when we think about this story, we don't stop and process the details. And so the details of the story don't really surprise us. But I want you to think about this, okay? God says, Joshua, you're going to win a battle against an impossible foe. All right? And the way you're going to do this is you're going to get up every morning, and you're going to get your troops up every morning. You're going to assemble them. You're going to get all lined up. You're going to get all get, get ready for a fight. And then you're going to march around the city, and the priests are going to blow their, their, their trumpets, and you're going to come home. Okay? And then... The next day, you're going to do the same thing. And if that's not weird enough, you're going to do that for six days in a row. Six straight days, everybody's going to get up, we're going to march around the city one time and come home. All right? And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times. And the, and the, and the priests will blow on the trumpets. And when they make this long trumpet blast, every one of you is going to shout to the top of your lungs. And when you do that, the walls... These impenetrable walls of this fortified city are going to fall down and you're going to rush in and you're going to take the city. So you mean we're not using battering ramps? Nope. You mean we don't need ladders? Nope. We're not going to tunnel under. We're not going to try that thing that the Greeks did and make a little you know, statue. And, nope. We're not going to try to you know, use explosives even those that haven't been invented yet. Nope. 
Just march around the city like I told you. All right, and then on the seventh day, just do it seven times, and then when the, the loud trumpet blast, you know, goes off, then just shout really loud, and that'll do the trick. Now, let me just tell you, all right, that's strange, okay? I mean, that's completely the opposite of what I think Joshua was expecting. I mean, just imagine, I think, you know, for just at least a split second, Joshua must have thought, okay, where are you going with this? Because this didn't make any sense to me. I'm not really sure you know, how this is going to work. But Joshua, you know, in his wisdom, he didn't let his doubt begin to settle in and creep in. He, in fact, he doesn't even hesitate to give the orders to do what, what God says to do, no matter how crazy it sounded to him. Which brings us to the next principle. God's plan will always work, even when it seems crazy or impossible. God's plan for your life will always work, because guess what? He's God. He is the God of the possible. He is completely sovereign. His ways and His plan is foolproof. No matter how crazy or impossible His plan may seem to us, His plan will always work. It seemed absolutely crazy to me that God was calling me to leave behind a lucrative career doing what I've done most of my life, to move here to the desert to prepare for a job that... I wasn't qualified for, and I had no idea how to get qualified for. And on top of that, a job I didn't even want to do in the first place. I told Kim years ago when I first became a Christian, I said, there's two things I won't do. I won't tell my story, and I don't want to preach. I'll do other things in the church, but I am not doing those, those things. I had no internal desire on my own to be a pastor. It was something that God put on me. But, but here, here I am. And I'm going to tell you, I'm happy I'm, I'm the happiest I've ever been. You know, I love my job. I love you know, being your pastor. I love my church family. I love everything about it. I wouldn't have never imagined that. But let me just tell you, God's plan for the longest time didn't make any sense to me at all. It just seemed crazy and impossible. But God's plan always works. And so the application for us in this is we must trust God even when His plans don't seem to make sense. Because God's plan for my life didn't make sense to me. But I chose to follow him anyway. And Joshua's plan, God's plan for Joshua's life and, and for the nation of Israel didn't seem to make sense. But he didn't hesitate to do what God said, even though it, sounded, it seemed strange and impossible. Joshua trusted God. Joshua was strong and courageous because he trusted God and his promises, even when the plan seemed strange or crazy. And so Joshua did exactly what God said, and his troops got up on the sixth, you know, for six straight days, marched around the city of Jericho one time, and then went home. And then on the seventh day, they rose up early, and at dawn of the day, it says, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 20 says, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and the wall fell down flat. And so the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. It, it happened exactly the way that God said it would happen. It happened exactly the way that God told him. God's plan worked to perfection. Joshua and his troops followed God's command. They did it to the letter and they had an overwhelming success, which brings, again, to another principle. True success comes from following God's plan. True success 
in our lives comes when we follow God's plan for our lives. And the application of that is if you want to be successful, trust God and do what he says to do. It's as simple as that. If you are following where God is leading and you're trying to do and work towards and accomplish the plan that God has for your life, then you just need to do what he's telling you to do. And if you will do that, you'll be successful. If you want to be successful, trust God and do what he says to do. And the battle of Jericho is a clear example of that. God said, march around the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, do it seven times, blow your horns, shout really loud, and the walls will fall down. And they did exactly what God said, and that's exactly what happened. And they had great success because of it. When you follow where God wants you to go, and trust in His plan, and do what He tells you to do, you will have great success in God's plan for your life. That's what happened here to the Israelites in the battle of Jericho. They followed God. They had great success. But then they fought the battle of Ai. And and things turned out differently. In fact, in uh, chapter 7, we're going to read in verse 2, it says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which was near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy the land. And the men went up and spied Ai. Now, let's just take a second, okay? Just like they did for Jericho, Okay, Joshua sent some spies out to get a sense of what they were up against. And it worked before. I mean, they did it before to Jericho, so they might as well just kind of keep the same template, the same plan, right? And then they returned and said to Joshua, do not have all the people go up, but let two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil, for they are few. In other words, we don't need to mobilize the entire entire army for this. There aren't that many people in AI, and guess what? We can knock this thing out by noon tomorrow. This won't be any problem. Just send a small crew because it's really light work, Joshua. We can handle this. And then in verse 4 it says, and so about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, and then look at this, it says, and they fled before the men of AI. And the men of AI killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate of Shebarim, And struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted uh, as water. Israel, the Israelites, to their surprise, were defeated by the men in this little city. So, here's what happened. The Israelites, fresh from an incredible victory, set their sights on Ai, which was supposed to be an easier target for them to conquer. And they get hammered. They get humiliated. I mean, they go to Jericho, a giant fortified city, have this incredible success, and then they go to this small city of AI, and they suffer an embarrassing failure. What happens here? What caused that? I mean, even Joshua was astounded. He was astounded and grief-stricken, wondering, Lord, what happened? In fact, in verse 6 it says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. These guys were grief-stricken. This defeat really caught them off guard. This was not what they were expecting. They're like, what's going on? I mean, Joshua's like, you know, you told me to be strong and courageous, and you said, you know, that that my enemies wouldn't be able to stand before me. And then this happens. And then in verse 7 it says, And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, Alas, O Lord God, why? Have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give them into the hands of the Amorites to, dis- to destroy us? Lord, I thought that you were with us 
I thought that this was your plan. Lord, why would you bring us here to have us defeated? What's going on here? Why have you abandoned us? Is really essentially what Joshua is asking him. And in that moment, Joshua probably felt a bit confused. But the truth is, there's three major reasons why the Israelites failed in this battle. There are three specific things that led to this failure. And the first one, as we read the text, as we notice that Joshua did not consult with God about the battle of Ai. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But just suffice it to say, that's a factor in this particular battle. Um, I mean, and so real quick, the application for us then is we need to continually seek God's counsel in everything. We need to seek God's counsel in everything. We need to continually be seeking God's will. We need to be like, Lord, what do you want me to do here? How do you want me to handle this, Lord? Lord, how should I proceed with this? Lord, how can I handle this or do this in a way that's pleasing to you? We need to continually be before God in prayer seeking His counsel. And the second thing, the second reason this battle failed, is that the Israelites became overconfident because of their previous success. They're like, man, you know, this is going to be easy. I mean, don't send the whole army. We don't need to do that. This is going to be a piece of cake. Their overconfidence blinded them to an important fact. The important fact is they lost sight of who wins the battle. See, they had this great victory and suddenly they think that there's something special. And they forgot that they're nothing without God. And so the application of this is always be mindful of who wins the battles. Be mindful that God is the one that wins the battles, big or small. Christ is the one. And understand, we cannot fulfill God's plan in our own strength. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. We must always remain humble and remember who it is that goes before us and wins the fight. Now, there's the third reason and the most important reason why the Israelites failed in the battle of Ai. And, and, and this is really where I want to kind of land today because this failure, this final you know, failure, um, if we will understand it, and if it's something that we will actually embrace and something that we will actually wrap our minds around, it will have an absolutely the most profound impact um, and application in our lives of these three of all these principles. Now, before we jump in here, let me just kind of take a, take a step and we're going to back up and rewind the story just a little bit because there's something that we need to see here. And if you'll remember, in, in, in verse 16 of chapter 6, it said, And the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout for the Lord has given you the city. And then if you remember in verse 20, you know, they shouted and the walls fell down. Well, before the walls fell down, before that actually happened, Joshua, speaking on behalf of God, said something else. And it's important that we understand. And so we picked it up in verse 17 of chapter 6. And it says, And the city, <clears throat> and Joshua says this, And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Everything in the city is to be devoted to God and is to be destroyed. And then he goes on to say, Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then Joshua continued and says, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Or in other words, don't get greedy, all right? And don't start putting things in your pockets, all right? Don't start taking things off the battlefield that are devoted for destruction. And he, and he warns, he says, Lest that you have, you have devoted them 
that you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction, you know, and trouble upon it. So what Joshua's saying is, don't take anything that's devoted for destruction, because if you do, not only are you endangering yourself, you know, by your sin, you are endangering the entire nation of Israel. And then he goes on to say, but all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so let me just summarize real quick what's actually happening here, okay? You see, in every part of your life, God asks for the, for the first portion, okay? God wants the first part of your time. That's why it's a great idea to get up first thing in the morning and spend time with God, all right? And God asks for the first part of your money. That's why we tithe, okay? We take the first 10% of what we earn, and then before we do anything else, we give it away to God, okay? We give God the very first fruits of our labor. It's the same thing in this story. In the story, God's saying, here's the first battle. And like every other battle, there's going to be spoils of war. And there are going to be many battles, and there's going to be a lot of stuff to reap the spoils and the financial benefits of gold and silver and livestock. But in this battle, in this battle, everything is dedicated to God. Everything is either dedicated to God for destruction, like the livestock and the clothes and the leather and the pottery, or everything is to be put in the God's temple, which is like the precious metals, like the gold, the silver, the iron, and, and, the, and the bronze. And Joshua, what Joshua is saying is, don't be tempted to take any of that stuff. It belongs to God. And he tells them that before they go in the battle. And so the Israelites, you know, do what God asked them to do, and the walls fall, they invade the city, they burn it to the ground, and they destroy everything. But then we read chapter 7, verse 1. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regards to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. See, Achan gets greedy. He just can't help himself when he sees some of this gold and silver just laying there. He just decides it's not going to hurt anybody if I pick this up and take it. So he decides to disobey God's command and he puts it in his pocket and he goes and he hides it. And because of that, God becomes angry, not with just Achan, but the entire nation of Israel. You see, the third and most important mistake that caused the failure at Ai was Israel allowed sin to enter the camp. Sin was allowed to enter their ranks. God said, don't take anything for yourself. But Achan disobeyed. And just because of that, it brought sin into the camp. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Sherman, that's not fair. I mean, not everybody participated in this sin. All right? This is one guy. It's what he did. It's not what everybody else did. And what he did shouldn't affect everybody else. I mean, not everybody knew about his sin. In fact, Joshua was completely unaware of that. So how is it fair that the Israelites are essentially punished by, by losing this battle? And in fact, 36 men lost their lives over this fiasco. How is that fair? Well, let me just start off by saying this. And it's a truth I think that we just all need to embrace. Fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. I mean, so many of us want the world to be fair. But sin, since sin entered the world, the world has inherently become unfair. And the reason for that is because that is the nature of sin. Which leads us to the three things that we need to understand about sin 
that we can learn from this particular story. And the first one is this. Sin is destructive. Sin is very destructive. Sin destroyed perfect creation. Sin destroys people's health. Sin destroys marriages and relationships. Sin destroys families and communities and even nations. And worst of all, sin separates people from God. And we can see this from the story that sin had a devastating effect on the Israelites. It cost people their lives. And it even threatened the mission of taking these people into the promised land. In fact, God says to Joshua in verse 10, He says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? All right? In other words, man, this isn't the time to grovel. This is the time for you to get busy and take action and fix this. All right? He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant and I, you know, that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put, some, uh, put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel, this is important, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, no matter how small they are. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Now, their enemies were the ones that were devoted for destruction, but because of this sin, everything has changed. And notice what God says. He says, I will be with you no more. He said before, he said, be strong and courageous. I will be with you. But now he says, I'll be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. You see, sin is so destructive that it even threatens the mission that God gives it. It threatens the mission of Joshua, and it threatens the mission that we all have in our own personal lives, and sin threatens the mission of the church. Sin compromises the power of the church. Sin compromises the witness of the church, and we all see it around us. Sin is destructive. It is very destructive. And then number two, what we need to understand about sin is that sin affects everyone. This is a point that's lost today on our culture. Sin affects everyone. Many people today, you know, will stand up and say, what do you care about what I do? That's what I did. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect you if I look at pornography. It doesn't, you know, I'm not hurting anybody by doing what I'm doing. It doesn't affect you if I'm sexually immoral. It doesn't affect you if I steal from big companies. It doesn't affect you that I fraud, you know, defraud my insurance company. It doesn't affect you if, if I like to, you know, drink a little too much or I like to experiment with, with drugs. It's my body. I get to do with it what I want to do. What I do with my life doesn't affect you. Why would you have to have anything to say about that? In fact, my sin, you know, and, and, and your sin, you know, they're, they're not the same. So it doesn't affect you. It's my sin and not yours. In fact, my very definition of sin, the way that I define sin, is different than the way that you define sin. So your point of view is irrelevant to me. Because guess what? The truth is relative. These friends, my friends, are all lies from the pit of hell. Because just as one man's, Adam's sin, affected us all, our sins affect other people. Our private sins affect our relationships. It affects our families. It affects our neighborhoods. It affects our churches. It affects our communities. When we think our sin... You know, when we think that our personal sin and our lifestyle decisions are our own, if like we live in some kind of vacuum, that sin actually radiates into the wider world, like concentric circles uh, from a stone thrown into a pond. Our sin affects other people. We affect each other, whether we want to or not. 
Because the truth is, sin has consequences. It always has, it always will. And we see that in the larger world around us. We live in a culture that's sold out on self. It's about what I want. It's, it's about the truth that I want to believe. It's about me and my feelings and my emotions. And how dare you, don't you dare tell me that what I'm doing is a sin, you hateful bigot. And now we have a whole generation embracing this worldview and the consequences are devastating. And we have just seen the tip of the iceberg. Sin. My sin. Your sin. The sins of your neighbors. The sins of your friends, your family. It affects everyone. Whether we want to or not. You see, we are free to choose what we want. But we are not free from the consequences of those choices. And we see that in the story. One man's sin affected the entire nation of Israel and had devastating consequences. And some of you think, well, 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 isn't that a bit much? I mean, isn't that really over the top? Isn't that just one guy's sin? I mean, it really wasn't that big of a deal, right? It was just a, a couple of things. It wasn't like he stole like a, a whole treasury for, you know, of stuff. Right? It wasn't like it was a conspiracy. Why does this have to affect everyone else? Well, for one, as we talked about, sin is destructive. But most importantly, which is the third thing that we need to understand about sin, is that God takes sin seriously. God takes sin very seriously. And this is the point that is lost on most of Americans. And this is lost on much of the church in America. You see, there is this distinct misunderstanding about how God views sin. For some reason, so many people in our culture think that Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven. And, and, and that's the truth. So I don't have to do or worry about sin anymore, which is not the truth. I don't have to take sin seriously because God is okay with sin now. I mean, as long as I say a prayer, Jesus come into my heart, then God doesn't care about sin anymore. I can just kind of roll through life, you know, without being changed. Jesus loves me just as I am, and he will leave me just as I am. And that's the biggest lie. Jesus does love you just as you are. He loves you right where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through. Jesus loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. That's right. Because God takes sin seriously. In fact, let me just share with you some of the things that Jesus himself had to say about sin. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life. And he's talking about eternal life here. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, he says, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. Verse 47, Jesus says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, this right here, this is the side of Jesus people don't like to talk about. This is the side of Jesus that we just want to Forget about. 
These are strong words, absolutely. And every Christian I know, when we look at these words and they look at this text, what we want to do is we want to point out that Jesus is using hyperbole here. Okay? That he's, he's, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's not really meaning that we cut off our hand or pluck out our eye. Jesus is trying to make a point. And, he, and, and that's correct. Jesus is using hyperbole. And he is trying to make a point. But he's trying to make a devastatingly graphic point. That sin is dangerous and destructive. And it has consequences. And God takes it seriously. And sin, worst of all, separates man from God, and sin consigns people to hell. We don't want to talk about that. Sin is a big deal because it's a big deal to God. In fact, verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Now, Again, it's one of those things you can read and kind of gloss over, but think about this. A millstone is a very huge stone wheel, okay? And it's used to mill out grain. And usually they were so big that they actually had to have a donkey that actually moved it around as it turned on another wheel. And what Jesus is saying here is, you are better off if you'll take a rope around, tied around your neck, tied around one of those millstones, and throw it and yourself into the depths of the sea instead of, causing someone to sin or engage in sin or embrace sin because there are going to be consequences for people who cause others to fall into sin. Because God is going to judge sin and He's going to judge those who practice sin and He's going to, to, to judge those who encourage it. God takes sin absolutely seriously. That's why Jesus over and over and over in the New Testament demands that we... Repent. And that, again, is not a favorite word of Christians. Because, you know, we, don't, we, we like this idea of praying a prayer once and then, you know, I'm fine and, and, and everything. You know, I can just go about living my life the way that I want to. But Jesus was quite clear about the fact that there needs to be a dramatic internal change toward sin. That's what he says. He says it over and over to repent. He says, from the, the Bible says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. Again, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke 5, 32. No, he says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says that twice, Luke chapter 3, I mean 13, verse 3 and 5. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus demands that we repent. He demands that something in our heart changes in how we see sin. In fact, being born again has at its very core this concept of repentance. In, in fact, our own statement of faith here at First Baptist Church puts it this way. It says, regeneration, or that new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Scriptures through the conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. You see, God takes sin seriously because sin is a serious matter. That is why the Israelites failed in their attempt to conquer AI. Sin is a serious matter and God takes it serious because it is serious. Sin is destructive. It's insidious. It's vile. 
And most importantly, the ultimate remedy for sin came at an unimaginable cost that we still today cannot even fathom. As you see Christ hoisted up on the cross with his body ripped to shreds by the beating that he's taken, suffering and gasping for air because crucifixion, you know, ultimately causes death by suffocation because of the weight of your body hanging you know, the weight of your body presses and, and, and collapses your lungs. And the only relief a person can actually have while they're on the cross is to actually stand up by pressing up with their feet that's with, on the nail that's driven through their ankles. And there on the cross, Jesus suffered in a way that's beyond our human understanding. And then God the Father, for the first time in all eternity, breaks fellowship with His Son as He turns His back on the suffering Christ. Okay. As He's as he takes upon himself the sins of the world, which again is something that we can't even fathom or process in our limited imagination. And in his unimaginable agony, the abandoned Christ cries out with a broken heart, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This image still today still takes my breath. It still brings me to tears. The thought of this shakes me to my, my very core. But even so, we can't fathom the fullness of the price that was paid so we could be free of sin. You see, if you truly have the slightest understanding of the cost and truly accept that it was your sin that nailed Christ to the cross, and if you actually meet the risen Christ and ask Him to be your Savior, something has to change Inside of you, something has to change. How can you keep in view the Christ on the cross and at the same time wink at sin or revel in sin? How can we appreciate the sacrifice that was paid on the cross on our behalf and yet act like God is okay with sin? How can you, you look at the price that Jesus paid and think, you know, sin's okay now. God takes sin seriously. He takes sin so seriously that in his love for you, he willingly paid a devastating and unimaginable price so you could be set free from your sin. And if you truly receive Christ's sin, especially, especially your own sin, should trouble you, it should bother you. Now I'm not saying here that once we accept Christ, we're going to be perfect. Because we're not going to be. We will all fall into sin. Because the truth is, we all stumble. What I'm saying to you is if you truly trust Christ, the knowledge of His sacrifice should convict you of your own sin. That there shouldn't be any desire in you to accept it or endorse it or revel in your sin. Again, we're going to continue to be sinners, but there's going to be this urging in your heart to repent. There's going to be an urging in your heart to change, which brings us to the application of this. The application of this is we must continually be on the lookout for and repent of the sin in our lives. We must take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. We must continually examine our own lives and seek out the sin that gets lodged into our hearts that we, and we need to repent of that sin. And again, we're not talking about being per perfect here on earth because it's not going to happen here on earth. But we are called to engage in continually a battle against sin. They were to fight against it. We're to continually struggle to be free of it. Because if we don't, we're going to become complacent 
and we're going to accept it and we will ultimately have huge consequences in our, in our lives because of it. Let's not fool ourselves. Sin always has consequences in our lives. Now the prescription that God gives Joshua to fix the mess that they found themselves in, he just tells Joshua, you need to dig in and root out the source of the sin in your nation. And he did. And he found it that it was Achan. It was Achan who disobeyed God. And, and, and he took the things that didn't belong to him. And in verse 24 it says, And Joshua and all Israel took him, Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold that he took, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Now, I realize this is graphic. And most of us Christians want to kind of distance ourselves from this side of God that we see in the Old Testament. We are bothered by this kind of violence and this kind of bloodshed. And we should be bothered by that. But we must understand right here, this is the end result of sin. Sin has a huge cost. Sin will be judged. It will be punished because it is an affront to God. It is absolutely God takes it seriously. And believe me, I understand we live in the New Testament world, okay? And we're not called to take people out there and stone them, all right? In fact, Jesus had something to say about that in the book of John, about, you know, those who are without sin cast the first stone. But let's not make any mistake here. God will not be mocked. We will always reap what we sow. And again, I remind you the words of the author of Hebrew who says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's a lot worse fate than what Achan faced. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And verse 31 it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, as this story continues, the nation of Israel roots out its sin and, and they seek God's counsel and then, you know, they, they humbly go into the next battle against Ai, you know, the second time. And God is with them and they win the battle and it's just, and they, they win with overwhelming success. And they're rewarded because now they are able to actually take, you know, the livestock and the spoils of, of the war, including the gold and the silver and the precious items. They're actually now able to enrich themselves through the battle. And, and, and with these two major battles behind them, Joshua and the nation of Israel are well on their way to fulfilling the mission that God had for them to possess the promised land. Now, there's going to be a lot more lessons uh, to be learned as we continue through the story of Joshua, but today I actually want to wrap up and I just want to talk to you about 
what do we do from here? I mean, where do we, now that we kind of like know this story, what do we take home from this? Where do we go? And, and, and as I've said, God has a plan for your life as an individual. He has a plan for this church. He has a plan for this community. And we need to embrace that plan and be strong and we need to be courageous. But we also must take the time to look into our own lives and see if there is sin that we're just not dealing with. Because sin poses a serious threat, not only to the plan that God has for, for us individually, it poses a threat to your families and your relationships. And we have to take responsibility, you know, we have a responsibility to God and everyone around us to identify that sin and actually, you know, repent of it. We need to grow and repent of that. And, 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 and you know, for, for some of us, that sin may be just something like pride, okay? Pride is a sin. Some people don't like to, to talk about that. But it is. It may very well be jealousy, you know, covetousness. It's a sin. So with, same with gossip. It may be sexual immorality. It might be, you know, it might be pornography. It might be rebellion against God as you refuse to go where, where God leads you. Right? You might just decide, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. That is rebellion. That's a sin. It might be drunkenness. You know, you might just decide, you know, I'm okay with, with drinking too much. It might be the sin of self-righteousness. That's an easy one to fall into, by the way. It might be the sin of refusing to forgive because Jesus says, forgive as you've been forgiven. It might be the refusal to be compassionate towards other people, even the ones that we disagree with. That can be a sin too. We all need to look in our own hearts and see the sins that haunt us this side of eternity. We're going to continue to battle these things, but we need to be on the lookout for it. We need not to wink at these sins. We need not to justify these sins and say, you know, I am who I am. All right? We need not to accept or endorse them. We need to take them seriously because God takes them seriously. We need to do what Christ himself calls us to do, which is to repent of it. And so what I'd like to, to do for you to do this week is I'd like for you to just take action on this. Don't just let this, don't be just a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Decide to do something about it. In fact, I want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer with God and ask him to help you with this part of your life because you're going to need God's help with this part of your life. And if you're not sure where to be and you're saying, Sherman, I don't even know how to start. Well, I've, uh, I've put in your notes a prayer that you can pray to God and ask his help to deal with the sin in your life. In fact, let's look at it together. Okay? It says this. It says, Father... I come to, to, to you asking that you would help me to identify and repent of the sin of my life. Search my heart, Lord. Examine me. If there is something in my life that is not pleasing to you, bring it to the forefront of my mind. Holy Spirit, convict me of that sin. Let that conviction bother me to the point I'm compelled to take action. And Lord Jesus, help me to remain mindful of your sacrifice for me. And give me the courage and the strength to repent and turn my back on my sin as I turn toward you and your grace. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So I just want you to take, I want to encourage you to take this home with you. Spend some time alone with God and just pray this prayer or a version of this prayer or, or whatever version of it you want to pray. But take action and actually get serious about something that God's serious about. 
Because if you will take this seriously, then God will continue to move you forward in the plan that he has for your life. As I've said over and over again, I will say again, he has a plan for all of our lives. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I just thank you for your grace and your mercy, and I thank you for your compassion in my life. I thank you that you think that a broken jerk like me be useful to you. And Lord, there are days I get up and I wonder why that's even possible. But I realize that all things are possible through you. And so I just ask right now in my own life that you would help me to look and see the things that I have a tendency to fall into. Help me to continue to identify, Lord, because I know there's lots of stuff that I struggle and battle with. Help me to continually, day to day, die to my flesh, to pick up my cross and to follow you and repent to the things that would seek to separate us. And I just pray, Father, in this congregation that there would be a people who would take that seriously because you take it seriously. And that we all together would want to live holy lives, not because that makes us acceptable to you. You already accepted us. But we would live holy lives that we would be able to be useful to you. That you'd be able to use us in a way that would bring glory and honor to your name. That's what we want more than anything else is for you to be glorified. And so I pray that you raise up a people in this congregation who love you and are passionately in pursuit of Christ and who would go out and share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.